Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Sunday this weekend marks the first Sunday after Epiphany, but the church doesn't call it that. The church instead celebrates the baptism of our Lord Sunday. So as you have just moved through the season of Christmas, which is a 12-day season that begins on December 25th and ends at the end of the day on January 5th, January the 6th, each and every year, that 13th day after the birth of Christ, is the day upon which the church celebrates Epiphany, which is from the Greek word uh, revelation, to be revealed, to be made known. Uh, And so, an epiphanos. What is this revelation that has been given to us? Well, it is traditionally the celebration of the idea that the Magi came and that they visited their new newborn king, their baby Jesus, this Savior who had been born to them and for them to save them, to deliver them, to be their true king. The Magi were not Jews. They were not part of God's covenant people, and yet Jesus was still their king. This is the revelation that God makes known his plan to save his people, his creation, through his son Jesus. God has taken that plan, that good news, and he has made it known to you. That's Epiphany. And it's this wondrous season of the church here, then. We celebrate it using the color green together. Uh, Green representing the idea of growth of the church. And what a growth of the church it's been, right? Not just that the Jews have faith. We're thankful that many of them do. But also that the Gentiles were included as part of God's plan on the cross and with the empty tomb. And the church has indeed grown The number of Gentiles converted to the Christian faith throughout the centuries has been amazing. We can't number it, but we'll get to live with them in paradise someday, and we'll be thankful for it then as we are now. So that's Epiphany for you, as as briefly as I can say it, uh, and still communicate what it's for. And so this is, again, this is the first Sunday after Epiphany, but we use this particular Sunday of the church here to celebrate the baptism of our Lord. So you'll notice the gospel reading from Mark's gospel very specifically focuses on that that baptism event. The text, I'm not seeing a a solid connection this week. So if, if if you listen and you hear something, feel free to share it back to me. Send me an email or something or tell me if you see me in person, if you, if you know me, um, I didn't see it. But we're going to study these texts together anyway. So we've got an Old Testament lesson from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. So we've got the very beginning of Scripture paired with essentially the very beginning of one of the gospel accounts. So that much at least makes some sense. And then our epistle text from Paul writing to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. And then our gospel reading is from Mark's gospel. And it is chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. There's some overlap there, and I'll mention that when we come back to it um, in a few minutes here. We're going to begin with our Old Testament text, Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. All right, so that's the first two verses here. It's a text that we know well, right? Almost every Christian has verse 1 memorized. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Not every Christian believes it, which is troublesome, but we know it. We even have a baseball joke in the beginning that comes from it. God is eternal. Now, that eternal word does give us some confusion from time to time because, in all honesty, we use it to mean different things. Eternal means essentially without time. So if you are eternal, it means you have no beginning and you have no end. There are things that have a beginning and have no end, 
And sometimes we call those eternal as well. When we refer to ourselves as eternal, that's what we mean. We had a distinct beginning, but we have no end. We're going to live forever. I prefer to use the word everlasting in that spot instead, just to try to prevent some confusion. Because we say God is eternal, and then we say we're eternal. And those two things don't mean the same thing. And then there's also those things that have... Well, there's a third category. I don't think there's anything in it. There are the things that had no beginning, but have a distinct end. I don't think anything fits that category. So God is eternal, is in the sense that he has no beginning and no end. And we are everlasting. We have a beginning, but we have no end. And really, that's true. I guess a fourth category, there are things that have a beginning and have a distinct end. And creation might fall into that category. But in terms of people, we're actually all everlasting, according to the scriptures, according to the clearest teachings in God's word. We are all everlasting. Now, that's not necessarily good. It's only good if we're with the Lord. So we are everlasting, and we have this promise that we will be with God in paradise, that we will get to live forever. That is good. But we also read that in the judgment on the last day, that even even the unbelieving, will be raised from the dead, and they will be raised unto judgment. Whereas we will be raised to life, they will be raised to judgment. They also are everlasting. But it's not a good everlasting. So some good distinctions to make that come just out of that little phrase here. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was a time when all that there was which is a weird way to phrase it, when all is God. When all that there was, was God. He has no beginning. He has always been. We we can't even fathom that because our mind is stuck in time. And time is a concept that God created for us, and he creates it right here in verse 5. Before verse 5, time doesn't exist, which again baffles our mind, it boggles our mind. God created time, and therefore God is not bound by time, which is another fun concept to try and wrestle with. God has always been. And so at some point, for some reason, God decides to create. We don't know when. Actually, we kind of do know when. I mean, assuming that God created relatively around the same time that he actually decided to create, purposed, planned to create. We don't know how long. That doesn't even work. I was going to say how long into, into God's forever existence it was before he created. That doesn't even work because, again, he created that time. So I don't know. It's a weird one to try and ponder and wrap our minds around. But God created everything. That's verse 1. He created all things. He created heaven. He created earth. Now, the Hebrew word here for heaven is Shemayim, um, which is not a reference to what we normally think of necessarily as heaven. We think of heaven and we think of the place where God dwells, the place where our loved ones go when they've passed away. The scriptures don't really talk that way, at least not as much as we would seek to have them do. In the Hebrew mind in their culture, as well as the New Testament age, with the the New Testament church, the Greek language, they use this word heaven and the word sky in English, and they use them interchangeably. We talk about the birds of the sky, but Hebrew, uh, sorry, Genesis chapter 1 in Hebrew is going to talk about them as the birds of the heavens. And so you get that spot in the New Testament where Paul talks about the guy that got caught up to the third heaven. And we suddenly start thinking, okay, are there levels to paradise when we get there? That uh, that guy was better than some, and so he got to go to a higher place. And that's not what the reference is to at all. So the reference there, when, when we think about this, the first heaven is what we call the sky. The second heaven is what we would consider to be outer space. And the third heaven is what we think of as heaven. 
so it's essentially a looking upward and acknowledging that upward just kind of kept going. All right. That's a lot on verse one. Verse two. Verse two is a lot of unknowns. What we know, uh, God hasn't truly created yet. He hasn't filled his creation yet. And so we get that there is earth. There's this idea that God has created or he is creating something, but there is no form to it. There's no matter to it. It's empty. That's what it, to be void means. That there's darkness over the face of the deep. I mean, we don't we don't really fully comprehend what that would mean or look like, nor do we really understand what it means that God could hover over the face of the waters, because again, there is no matter. It is still void. It is still empty. Uh, what exactly this means and what exactly it looks like is is beyond our comprehension, and that's okay. The Spirit of God is there. That's something we can take out of verse 2. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is involved in creation. So the Trinity, uh, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, involved in that, that great work at the beginning. Verse 3 gets a little bit more understandable, but still extremely profound. Verse 3 is perhaps one of the most profound verses in your entire Bible. God spoke, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. I guess I haven't read the text. Let me finish the chapter, or the, <laughs> the reading for the day. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. God speaks, and it happens. That's the profound nature of God that you need to, I'm not going to say necessarily understand. But in some way, you just need to get it. You just need to accept it. That your Lord, the master of the universe, the one who has created all things, can simply speak and it happens. For the most part, you and I don't have that kind of authority. But this is God's creation. This is how he's done it. It is what he does. Many think that it's ridiculous. Um, and that's fair. They're, they're welcome to think that. We can't stop them from thinking that. But... If you are my brother or sister in Christ and you're hearing this and you don't believe that God can simply speak and something happens, what about Jesus? Think about the New Testament. Think about the miracles of Jesus when he, how does he stop the storm? He simply speaks to it and it stops. How does he cast out demons? He simply speaks to them and they must obey him. How does he heal the sick? Many times it's simply by speaking and it happens. He even raises the dead that way. Lazarus, come out. Little girl, get up. If God cannot speak something into existence, if God cannot speak and something happen, then a lot of the miracles of Jesus are erased. They're just made up. And if they're made up, we're in trouble. We're in big trouble. But there's more that hinges on this as well, because now you really need to consider what is it that God speaks into existence for you? This is where verse 3 takes on that profound nature for us, even in our lives today. Because through God's word and through his sacrament, even yet, even today, he is still speaking, he is still declaring, and things are still happening. Through his word, and connected to the water of baptism, you have been given faith. Faith has been created in you. It has been called into existence by the speech of God. Through his word and the Lord's Supper, 
that marvelous body and blood of our Savior Jesus Christ. Through his speech, your sins are forgiven. They are taken from you. They are declared to be his, and they are erased. We also see that same spoken word of forgiveness granted in the absolution that your pastor pronounces over you as you have gathered together as his as God's people, his people in his house. If God cannot do verse 3, if God cannot speak something into existence, he cannot save you. He cannot create faith in you. He cannot forgive you. That's how deeply entwined this stuff is. This is part of God's character. This is part of who he is. He has the authority and he has the power to do this very thing, to speak, and it just happens. It just becomes. His very word speaks us into existence. Incredible stuff. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now, this text is, is challenging in several ways. Uh, it is challenging to us in what we were just speaking about, but it is also challenging to us because when we think about the order of creation, when we think about the world as we know it, where does light come from? You know, you step outside in the morning and it is light outside. Where does that light come from? Most of us would be very quick to answer the sun. Spelled in English, S-U-N, not capital S-O-N. But here's the problem. When you actually read your way through the Genesis 1 creation account, God does not create the sun until day four, S-U-N. The sun, the moon, and the stars are created on day four, not on day one. And yet on day one, God has created light. Science does not understand this. Science can't understand this. And because man can't understand it, man chooses not to believe it. I cannot explain to you, per se, I have an educated guess, but I, I don't know for sure how there's light prior to there being a sun, a glowing fireball in the sky. My educated guess is that this is connected to Christ. It's connected to, similar to the transfiguration. In the transfiguration, as God makes the declaration that this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, listen to him. In that moment, in that event, Jesus is transfigured. He shines. His face radiates. When Moses approaches God and actually gets to see him and then comes back down the mountain, his face is shining, and they have to put a veil over his face because they are afraid to look at him. They are afraid of the wrath of God that might fall upon their sinfulness. God himself gives light to his creation. That's my educated guess. Not that God created himself, but that God spoke and chose to give off light for the good of his creation. Again, educated guess. I cannot prove that one to you, um, but it connects to Jesus in the Gospels saying, I am the light of the world, and then turning around, and once you have Christ in you as his disciple, as followers of Christ, he says, you are the light of the world, Matthew chapter 5 that we are to share him and his light with all of creation. And in Revelation, we read that there will be no sun in paradise. And we read that, and again, the human mind can't comprehend it, and so most of our commentators rule that part out, saying that it doesn't really mean that. It doesn't really mean it when it says there will be no sun in, in paradise. It doesn't really mean it when it says there will be no sea in paradise. Now, it's true, a lot of revelation is figurative. It's speech that we need to try and understand what God was trying to teach us. But I have no problem with the idea that Jesus Christ is the light of paradise. 
and that we don't need a son any longer because we have the son, we have Jesus. Capital S-O-N. That's one compound, one complexity, one challenge in this opening section. Another challenge in this opening section is going to come to you with verse 5. But before we get to that, just one more note um, from verse 4, a couple of quick thoughts from verse 4. God saw that it was good. This is going to be a recurring theme of Genesis chapter 1. It's going to show up after every day. God is going to look at what he created. He's going to call it good until you get to day 6 at which point God looks at his whole creation, which is now finished, and he says it was very good. It is the completion of his creation, which included giving it its caretakers, Adam and Eve, you and me. There is an interesting pattern, so we see God's separated light from darkness. In the first three days of creation, God separates. So on day one, he separates light from dark. On day two, he separates water from water, creating the seas below, really, and then the, the heavens above. On day three, he, he separates the, the sea from the dry land. On days four, five, and six, in parallel then, he comes back and he fills what he has separated. So day one, he had separated light from dark. On day four, he creates the things that govern light and dark, the sun, the stars, and the moon. On day two, he separated the water from the water. On day five, he creates the animals that will live in the water, and he creates the animals that will live in the heavens, the sky up above. Day three, he had separated the dry land from the water. So day six, he comes back and he gives that fillness, that fullness to his land as he creates all the plants. He creates the animals that are going to live in his creation. He creates man to care for it all. So it's this really neat parallel structure. Uh, that God has is is his created order. He's got a function, a design to the things that he has made. All right, but I said the bigger challenge here. So in verse 5, he gives them names. So the light he calls day, the dark he calls night. The big challenge in verse 5, how long? Christians debate amongst themselves over this a lot. How long is a day? When God said one day, does he mean 24 hours like we think of a day? Or could it be millions of years? Could God have created the earth using evolution? This is a position that has a fancy title. Theistic evolution is the title for it. And there are entire church bodies that have given into that, that declare that God created Not in six literal days, but in six ages, six long, drawn-out periods of time. Uh, At last I heard, even the, the, the majority Christian church of the world, the Roman Catholic Church, had sided with the idea of theistic evolution. So this is one that's bought into by many, many people. I don't. I don't think theistic evolution has has the support of scripture behind it. I just don't see it. Well, I mean, we can go to the literal text here. There was evening and there was morning the first day. Why would God speak to us using terms that he is giving to us if he doesn't mean by them what he's teaching us them to mean? Why would he use the word evening and morning if it doesn't mean evening and morning? On the third day, Jesus will rise from the dead. God chooses to use that language with us. Why would he change his language? Why, Why give us that descriptor at all if it wasn't going to mean something to us? Yes, we have a text in the New Testament that says a day to the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years to the Lord are like a day. That's fine and good. Again, God created time. God is outside of time. But here God is speaking to us in terms that we are supposed to understand. 
So I see no valid scriptural reason at all to begin with, just from the words of scripture, to think anything other than the standard day. Now, is it possible that a day was not 24 hours, but maybe it was 25 hours or even 30 hours or who knows, maybe 48 hours? Because in our sinfulness as stewards of creation, we broke creation and it caused a shift. I mean, I guess that's possible. But I would lean towards the 24-hour day. And that God can simply speak and stuff happens. It doesn't take two million years for God to say, let there be light. Let there be light. And there was light. It doesn't take billions of years for God to say, let there be swarming creatures in the sea. If he says it, it happens. Again, how important that is to our faith that God can speak and it happens. It doesn't take ages for God to create faith in you. It takes that mere moment. Speaking of the word, it is done. The good gift has been created and given to you. The other part of this that doesn't pass uh, a scriptural test, the big difference between creation and evolution in terms of theories is the place of death. In the scriptures, death does not enter until after mankind has sinned. So day one through six have occurred. God has taken day seven off. And whether Adam and Eve sin on day seven, day eight, or day 37, I don't know. We really don't know. I can only tell you it probably wasn't nine months because, you know, Cain hadn't been born yet. And they weren't sinful, so they weren't broken. So even fertility wasn't broken. Somewhere between day 7 and day 97, sin entered into creation. And when sin entered into creation, then death entered into creation. The creation account of Genesis tells us that we began as perfect. But because of sin, death entered the world, and we now have become imperfect. So creation says we are perfect, and we moved to imperfection, and now we die. Evolution, even theistic evolution, teaches the opposite, that creation was not yet perfect. It was imperfect, and it, it is constantly, gradually making its way towards perfection. And that death actually had to happen originally because those first things that were made, those first things that existed weren't good enough, and they continued to evolve into something better, and they died off along the way. Death is really one of, one of the crucial conversation points when it comes to creation or evolution for the, the mind of a Christian, for the perspective of a Christian. We simply cannot have death prior to the fall. Death is the consequence of our sin. It is not something that existed before that. Not even for the animals. First death in all of scripture happens in response to Adam and Eve's nakedness, to the shame that they take on having sinned and seeing their nakedness. And so God kills an animal right there before them. He kills an animal and he clothes them with that animal's skin. So several, those five verses, several very deep parts of, of contention among Christians are seen in these verses, and yet several profound things for us to consider as well. Just as our Old Testament reading was a fairly well-known part of Scripture, Really, so is our epistle text from Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. Maybe not all of it, but it is a, it's another one of those deeply profound scriptures that is important for us as Christians to know and to engage and to wrestle with. Uh, this, is, this is good stuff. And there are a couple of verses in here that when you hear them, you'll think, yeah, I've heard that one a lot. Um, if you've been in church any number of times, I mean, this is stuff that comes up again and again. These are kind of verses that your preacher will cite in sermons. 
throughout the year, not just when this text shows up. So these are familiar to us. We've studied them in our catechism, but we get to put it into its context and see some of the bigger picture here today. So again, this is this Romans letter is Paul writing to the Christian church that was established in the city of Rome. Um, I couldn't tell you really how large that congregation would have been. Um, churches tended to have been small. And so this is a group of brothers and sisters in Christ who they, they've put their trust in Jesus as their Savior. Um, they, they believe in him and what he has done for them by his death and by his resurrection, that he is the way to life and to salvation. And Paul is addressing them in this letter. And the, the okay, I'll read it first. We're going to read it in two chunks. So we're going to read verses one through four first. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul pulls this kind of rhetorical question device off throughout the letter. And if I recall correctly, those first words in verse 2, by no means, uh, are words in Greek, it's meganoita that he uses 10 times in the letter. So he's asked a question, and he refutes the question that he just asked. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? So, I mean, the what shall we say then question leads you to start thinking, okay, this is common conversation. Paul is addressing something that has come up among them. So what is that thing? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And another way to kind of put that, we love to sin, God loves to forgive, that's great. This is going to work out well. We can go on sinning, he'll go on forgiving, everybody's happy. Is that how it works? By no means. Or literally the meganoita, may it never be, may it never be happen. And then he goes on to explain it. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Wait a second, Paul, you mean we're dead to sin? When did that happen? How did I miss that? Well, Paul goes on to answer that question for them immediately next. You are dead to sin, Christian. When did it happen? In your baptism. Verse 3. And this is probably the best known of the verses in this whole reading today. From Romans 6 at least. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Do you not know? You should know this. Do you? Why were you baptized? What did it mean? What was it for? I guess perhaps there is our connection to the gospel text that Jesus is baptized here. We are baptized, but that's not the same thing. Save that for our conversation around Mark. You have been baptized into Jesus. And when you were baptized into Jesus... You were baptized not just into Jesus, you were baptized into his death. That is, in that moment, when water was poured upon you, you were crucified with him. And Paul's going to use that very language coming up in verse 6. When you were baptized, you died. This connects to John chapter 3. Everybody knows John 3.16, but the conversation around it is Jesus talking to Nicodemus and telling him that he must be born again. 
And Nicodemus doesn't understand and says, how can I crawl back into my mother's womb to be born again? Jesus tells him that you must be born again of water and the spirit. And that is baptism. That is the reference point there. You must be born again. So in baptism, your old self is put to death in order that the new self may live. The old Adam dies and the new Adam lives. You are no longer a slave to sin. That's also coming up in the next paragraph. You were baptized into death. You were baptized into his death. You were baptized into his blood, into his forgiveness. And not only were you baptized with him, buried with him, you were buried with him into death in order that, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, so you too would walk in the newness of life. So the progression of the text, you are baptized into his death, that is, you are baptized into forgiveness, so that you can have life. You die so that you can live. You are baptized so that you can be raised. You are forgiven so that you can live with Christ forever. Second part of the text, verses 5 through 11. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. That's where he's aiming. Verse 11. The, the, the thrust, the goal of the text for the hearer. To come to that point, to come to that understanding. But we'll come back to that. Verse 5 is an if-then statement. If you have been united with him in death, you will also be united with him in resurrection. It is not either or. You weren't just martyred. You weren't just killed and then left dead. But nor will you just be raised. The two are a pair. You don't get one without the other. You must die to sin and be raised to new life. Just as surely as you were united to him in his death, just as surely as that faith was created in you and that old Adam was drowned in that water, so now you will surely be united with him in his resurrection. That as he lives, you will live. Christ lives forevermore. There is no end to Christ's life. Death no longer has dominion over him. I'm jumping ahead. We'll come back to that. So much to this text. Verse 6. Our old self was crucified with him. And notice it's not the first time that Paul says we know. Right? I mean, back up in verse 3, that was the accusation there. Do you not know? Yes, they, they were supposed to know this. This is... This is for them to know. Verse 6, we know that. Verse 9, we know that. Paul is not introducing new material. He's building upon the faith the Christian already has. Our old self was crucified with him. Our, our sinful nature, which desires to live this life only for me, myself, and I, was killed. Well, it doesn't mean it doesn't still rear its ugly head. That does not mean that our sinful nature doesn't still wish to drag us down into death with it. 
But that old master of us has been destroyed. It has been defeated. It is no longer our master. Your sin no longer has hold over you. You are no longer a slave of sin. We don't quite get there in this text, but we are now slaves of God. That's Paul's own language. He speaks that way elsewhere in this very letter. You are freed from slavery to sin, and now you are slaves of Christ. You had one master, and a new master conquered it. You had the master of sin that ruled over your body, leading you to death, and a new master rode into Jerusalem on a donkey to be that conqueror, but not to conquer Rome, but to conquer your master to conquer sin, to destroy the one who held the chains over you. And just as when a man conquers a nation, he does not just let the nation go to waste, it is now his nation, so it is for Christ. When he conquered sin, he made you his. You are his, you are his child, you are his Now, if we speak of Jesus, typically we speak of being his bride. The church is his bride. You are his. We are now slaves of God. We are slaves to do his will, not our will. Verse 7 is profoundly true. The one who has died has been set free from sin. We think of this... In the big picture, we think of this in the end, right? That in paradise, there will be no more sin. There will be no suffering. There will be no death. There will be no tears. God will wipe it all away. And so the one who has died no longer sins. The one who has died no longer suffers the consequences of sin. Either their own sin, which bring about our death, or the sins of others that would harm them. They no longer have that. They have been set free. Yes, that is profoundly true of the last day when Christ returns and the dead are raised. But, but it has implications for you even now. Right? I mean, look at the context. Does We know verse 7 is true of, of literal death. When we kill over dead, then there's no more sin for that person. But does the context tell you that's what Paul's talking about? You died when you were baptized. Verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ Jesus. The life he lives, he lives to God. He will never die again. All these statements in the context around verse 7 tell us that we shouldn't look at verse 7 about the future. We should look at verse 7 as being even about now, as having an implication for you even now. You, in your baptism, have died with Christ. You are set free from sin. Sin is no longer your master. Really, it's just an extension of verse 6. It is an extension of that phrase that you are no longer enslaved to sin. You no longer have to do the bidding of your sinful nature that tells you to only focus on yourself. You are free to love. You are free to care for God's creation. You are free to think of your neighbor before you think of yourself. You are free to think of your neighbors before you think of yourself. Verse 8, if we have died with Christ, we believe we will also live with him. Again, it's not one or the other, it's both. You cannot live with Christ if you do not die with Christ. But if you've died with Christ, you will also live with him. These two things are bound together. Just as a man and woman are bound together in marriage, and as God says himself, that no man put asunder, no man can separate. So it is with these things. No man can separate these things. They They are one because God has made them one. Verse 9, Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. 
what an important concept. What an important reality that is for the church. Christ died. The one who came into this world to be the Savior, to to be the Messiah, that the world looked at and thought, this is the one who will save us from our oppression, who will save us from all the evil things that are happening to us by these evil and wretched leaders that are over us. He will establish this great new kingdom for us. Well, they were wrong. They were wrong about the enemy that he had come to defeat. The Roman leaders... We're not the enemy. The the corrupted Jewish leaders that we call the Pharisees in the New Testament, they were not the enemy. They were bound to the enemy. They were enslaved by the enemy. They were misled by the enemy, but they were not the enemy. The enemy was death. The enemy was sin. Sin had worn them down. Sin had enslaved them just as it had enslaved us. And Christ came to break that bondage. And he did by going to the cross, God himself in the flesh, going to the cross and offering up his life. No greater love has man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for us. He gave himself that we might live And because he gave himself, because he died on that cross, but then he rose again from the dead, God raised him from the dead, he can never die again. He is now immortal. Being God, he was immortal. But when he took on flesh, he also took on mortality. He took on the ability to die, and he died. But now his resurrected body is immortal. Just as Paul will go on to say in the letter he writes to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the resurrection chapter, Paul unpacks this one, that you will be raised immortal, imperishable. God has raised his son Jesus from the dead, and because he has raised Jesus from the dead, death has no, death has no power over him. Jesus just stepped out of the tomb like it was no big deal, except for it was. It was the big deal. It was the biggest deal of all. That is, Jesus stepped forth from that tomb. He rendered death incompetent forever. Death no longer has any power. It doesn't have any power over him. It doesn't have any power over you. Such a profound truth, again, in the text here. Verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. Jesus' death was not for some. Jesus' death was not, um, well, it wasn't like the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was... You know, you'd sacrifice an animal and get a little forgiveness. Jesus' death was for all people, all time, all sins, everywhere. The whole world has been covered over by Christ. So God looked down on his creation back in Genesis 6 and saw that the hearts of men are nothing but evil all the time, and he wiped out his creation Now God looks down over his creation and he sees not the evil of our hearts, (laughs) which is still there, and we still must daily repent of that. It is still there in many of our neighbors and they don't repent of it. They don't want to repent of it. But God looks down and he sees not that evil. He sees the forgiveness of his son. He sees the righteousness of his son. His creation has been reconciled. His creation is no longer an enemy that fights against him. Jesus rose from the dead not to live for his purpose, not to live for his will, but to live for the Father's will, to do what the Father has intended for him to do. 
And that then connects us to verse 11, which is, again, the thrust that Paul wanted the hearers to hear and to understand. You also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves. Hearers today on your podcasting app, wherever you are, consider yourselves dead to sin. And alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin is no longer your master. You no longer have to give in to whatever temptations that you face and that you fight. They don't have the power over you anymore. This is not to say that we won't still sin. But it is simply to say, and it's not simply to say, this is profoundly to say, but on a, a, a simple and personal note, it's to shift our mindset away from I will sin to God forgives me if I sin, when I sin. We don't come to confess our sins to Jesus saying, you know, I did this thing today, Jesus, I lied. But I'm a sinner and I'm going to lie again and I know I'm going to lie again. So thank you for today. That's not how we confess. We confess, we repent, we turn away from our sin. We confess to the Lord that we have lied and we thank him for our forgiveness. There is not, we don't hold on to the thought in the back of our minds that we're going to go do that sin again. It is not repentance if you've somehow harbored that sin somewhere so that you can return to it. That is not repenting. It may well be that you do return to it after you've repented. But we don't live for it. We live for God. And if when we sin again, we confess and the Lord forgives, and we go out and we continue to live for God. We are not here to live for ourselves. We are here to live to serve the Lord and to love our neighbor. That's the purpose Christ gives to us in the Gospels. Again and again, we see it all the time in the New Testament. If you're looking for it, you see it. That life has two purposes for you. Love God, love your neighbor. That's what we've been given to do. Not to live for our own purpose, but to live for his purpose. You are dead to sin. And you are alive in Christ Jesus. That is the answer to verse 1's question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In all honesty, grace, grace doesn't somehow abound. Grace has been once and for all poured out, and you have been, you have been overwhelmingly covered in grace until your cup overfloweth. You are his forevermore. Our gospel text is from Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verses 4 through 11. Now, we did have this very text, a uh, part of it at least, five weeks ago as we celebrated together the second Sunday in the season of Advent. We got our introduction to Mark's gospel with verses 1 through 8. And so our overlap this week is verses 4 through 8. We won't cover those in depth as we did that already together if you're following along in the lectionary or in the show. So you can go back if you'd missed those and listen to them on that episode if you'd like. But um, we'll still read through them here and, and talk about them in brief. We also want to make the note this is essentially still the beginning of Mark's gospel account. Mark does not offer us a, a birth narrative of Jesus. He does not offer us a, a narrative of the events of Jesus' childhood. He skips right to what Jesus has come to do, which again, Mark's gospel purpose and function is almost entirely that, is, is pointing very much precisely to Jesus. You know, he doesn't have a lot of extra stuff. He, he's very clean cut. Uh, the text moves along uh, with immediacy. As he's trying to streamline stuff, I mean, this is this is a favorite gospel for many because of that. It's almost known as the action action gospel because of how quickly moving it is. And so, again, Mark just moves right into stuff. And so, the first verse is about the uh, Mark announcing the very thing, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he jumps into Isaiah's prophecy, 
Behold, I will send a messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That Isaiah prophecy is a reference to John the Baptist. And so we pick up with John the Baptist here in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So that's the overlapping part of our text from five weeks ago. You have some key points in there. I mean, John the Baptist is is given to us. He's shown to us what he did as his work of preaching and, and leading people to repent through baptism is there for us to see again. Um, repentance is such a important concept here that we would turn away from our sins as we were just talking about in the Romans text and we turn away from them and we would turn towards God we would turn towards Christ and so John is getting people to to put away their sinful lives and prepare to meet their savior face to face the one who has come to redeem them and to rescue them and that's where we're going to pick up with verse 9 here in just a moment. But the other big note from that earlier spot is just the, the humility of God's servant, John. Um, he's, he's not living a life of comfort. He's living in the wilderness. He's living clothed in camel's hair, which is not comfortable stuff. He's, he's eating locusts as his food, which isn't a, you know, exactly a gourmet coursed meal. John is a humble servant. And he does the work of a humble servant because that's what he's been sent to do. Jesus is going to show us similar humility in his ministry. And he calls on us to be humble as we continue his service today. So let's look at our text in verses 9 through 11. Uh, this is why the text is here for this weekend as against the baptism of our Lord Sunday. And here is one of the accounts from the Gospels of Jesus' baptism. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So, I mean, that's it, really. And that's our text that we're, we're looking at here. Several things we can talk about. A, Jesus is baptized. That's the key. Um, B, what's Mark using this for? Why does Mark... So Mark didn't even bother to tell us about Christmas. Why is Mark telling us about this? And then C, what is, John, what is Jesus actually baptized for? Why? Why does that have to happen? So... As we look at this text, so let's go ahead and just look at it a little bit more in depth. In those days, so in the, the length of time that John was doing his part of the ministry, the work of calling people to repent, baptizing them in the Jordan River, we don't know how long of a period of time that went on for. Um, obviously, John has to have grown up and been able to talk and such, so he wasn't doing this as an infant. But has he been doing it for a few months? Has he been doing this for a few years? The text does not reveal that to us. He's just preparing the way of the Lord, and then the Lord comes, right? Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, we, we learn this of Jesus in the other Gospels as well, that Jesus comes from Nazareth. It's actually where Joseph was, was from himself before the census that called them down to Bethlehem for the time of Jesus' birth. And then they go down to Egypt, and then eventually they come back, and they go back to Nazareth. And that is where Mary and Joseph raised Jesus from his, his time as a little child until he is ready to begin ministry. At some point in there, something happens to Joseph, and most likely death of, of ordinary cause. But we never actually hear that in the scriptures. So Nazareth is, for the, in terms of the Jordan River, it's off to the west. So the Jordan River runs north to south um, and forms 
in some ways the eastern border for what we consider to be Israel. Nazareth would be to, to the west of that and a little off to the north, um, about halfway, roughly halfway between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And so Jesus has come down from Nazareth. He's gone to the Jordan River and he's been baptized by John. And that's the spot where we want to pause. Why is Jesus baptized? If we look at verse 4, verse 4 says John was baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism for a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance and forgiveness was the purpose of John's baptism. Does Jesus have anything he needs to be forgiven of? The answer to that is no. Does Jesus have anything in his life that he needs to turn away from because it's wrong? No. There's, there's nothing here for Jesus to repent of or to ask forgiveness for. So why is he baptized? You have two common answers that you hear. One is to set an example for us. It's my least favorite of the answers. Another is that, well, let's reflect on that just for a moment. So to set an example for us, almost like God resting on the seventh day on the Sabbath to, to set the example for us to do. Jesus doesn't need to set this example for us. He very much specifically gives us the command to do it. When you look at Matthew chapter 28, for example, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And to set the example, and it just seems... It seems like a non-answer, a way of saying that we don't know. I'm slowing, <laughs> slowing my speech right now because I, I actually have caused myself to puzzle a little bit as I wrestle with my, my own comparison to the, the creation, to the Sabbath, because God also commanded Sabbath. God also did not need to Sabbath himself, but he did it anyway. So it is an ex actually an interesting parallel. I still don't think it's the best answer. Uh, the other, Another answer that you probably commonly would hear is it is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In the context of Mark's gospel, I think that's the answer that you have to run with. And we'll get to that in a second. But I want to take one step further back because one of the authors of Scripture, Matthew, actually gives us the reason that Jesus is baptized. Jesus was baptized in order to fulfill all righteousness. Now, that still leaves you scratching your head wondering, okay, well, what's that supposed to mean? That doesn't exactly clear anything up for us. And really what it comes down to is this idea that Jesus has a title. Uh, he has a name. He is Israel reduced to one. Jesus stepped into the creation to do everything Israel was supposed to do because they had failed to do it. So he came to keep the law because we failed to keep the law. He was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He was baptized as a part of what the church is supposed to have lived and have done, and they weren't doing Jesus does everything the church has failed to do for us, in our place. Not to be an example to us, but to actually do it. You know, he goes to the temple when he's a child. He's, he's presented, there's a sacrifice that, was, that is made. He's circumcised, he's named on the eighth day. Um, the family regularly goes to the temple, to the temple when they can for the Passover each year. Um, assumedly, they're teaching Jesus about faith and things throughout the week at home um, for the rest of the course of the year and going to a local synagogue, perhaps even. But Jesus is growing up. He's doing everything Israel was supposed to do in order to take Israel's place 
Israel had failed to keep the covenant, so now Jesus takes their place in the covenant that he might take their death, he might take their punishment from that covenant, from breaking it. When you break a covenant, the penalty is death, and so they broke it. But instead of their death, Jesus steps into that death. He steps into being Israel for us. And now out of that, he gives us a new covenant. He gives us this new church that you and I are a part of today. Um, a way to look at this title of Israel reduced to one is almost like a, a bow tie um, or an hourglass, either one. They're similarly in shape. Um, so you have the Old Testament church and it funnels its way into that center, that crucial spot in the middle which is Jesus, and then out of Jesus, out of that spot, flows this new thing. The Old Testament church was reduced to this one man, and from this one man has spawned an entire church. That's the picture of Israel reduced to one. And that's what Matthew is really connecting the baptism of Jesus to. Mark doesn't do that. Mark, if anything, simply connects this to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. He jumps straight over everything, in regards to the first 30-ish years of Jesus' life, and he just has him beginning. So Jesus is baptized here, and we get a couple of verses about his temptation, not near as much as we get from a couple of the other gospel accounts. And then we get to verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And that verse, verse 14, is subtitled in the English Bible that I use, Jesus begins his ministry. So I think in terms of the greater context of Mark's gospel, the purpose for Jesus' baptism, simply, more simply than Matthew's, uh, Mark's purpose for it is simply to connect us to the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Just he jumps right in. As we look at the baptism itself, there's nothing actually said about the baptism like the moment of baptism, instead only recorded what happens afterwards. Jesus comes up out of the water just as Israel came up out of the Red Sea from crossing on dry land. And God opens the heavens and sends down his Holy Spirit to be upon Jesus. That's a profound picture right there. And it's one that we don't, again, know a lot about. Who saw that? Is it something only Jesus could see? Is it something that all the crowd gathered there together could see? Is it something maybe Jesus and John alone could see? They don't bother to answer that in Scripture. And who hears the words? Does the whole crowd hear the word of God spoken to him? Do they hear something mysterious that they can't understand and only Jesus understands it? The text doesn't bother to answer that again. God speaks, Jesus hears, Jesus sees. God hears the Father proclaim to him, to proclaim upon him, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The same words God speaks to him at the transfiguration. That all Jesus has done for these 30-ish years up to this point, he has done well, he has done correctly, he has done perfectly, he has kept the will of his Father. And so as the Father sends Jesus out into the world to do the work that he has come to do, he sends him with his word of blessing. That's our text for the week. That is the, the case of the baptism of Christ. It is the focus of our churches as we gather for worship together. That Christ is baptized. His earthly ministry has begun.